So do you want to know my hilarious uh, name for the episode? That my working my working title for the episode. Well, it's not going to be Brothers War Story Review: The Past to keep in line with all the other story well, review episodes. Well, yeah, of course that's probably what you're going to name it. Yeah, of course that's what you're going to name it. But I mean, I had I had it as frenetic differences, like frere is in like the French for brother. Good, great. I'm, I'm glad you love it. Welcome to Magic the Flavoring, the Magic the Gathering podcast, where we talk about all things magic, flow design, and lore. I'm your host, Andy Mann. Hello, this is Nathan Cancel. And today, we're going to be talking through the, I'm going to say first half, the the, the main quote-unquote stories from the Brothers War uh, online web fiction. Online web fiction. Uh, <laughs> that's what other kind of web fiction is there? Offline? Um... We're going to be chatting through all of the Miguel Lopez stories today, and who boy, is there a lot of it for only five episodes. Yeah, what, what, I mean, it's funny you say the first half, and then you did the quote-unquote main story, because I very much feel like this is weird, because the main story feels like side stories, because it's not concurrent with the, you know, our present day, you know, as an audience, like, we are currently sat with Teferi and Kaya and Sahili trying to figure out how to go back in time. But actually, the main story is, because it's a set set in the past, the main story is actually the uh, these little vignettes that we've got. Um, and the side stories are actually the concurrent present-day story, which is kind of a, a reversal of what, what we normally get. And it does feel odd having the main set be set in the past. It almost, it, it feels like a side story set, kind of in that fashion which i guess we never really knew how it was going to come across because it's the first time they've kind of done a throwback set and we've kind of talked about how we wanted there to be throwback sets because it gets to fill in um narrative you know plot points and stuff and it gets us um you know the the, the new folks the new wave the post-mending mtg players kind of a, a chance to look at um, a really poignant part of history and i feel like it's done really really well but there are certain things that just feel a little bit strange and i think one of those is that we've got this really dense narrative that is completely irrelevant kind of to the modern story and you could ignore all of this and it could still be part of that yeah yeah yada yada brothers war happened years ago um i don't need to know about that it was four and a half thousand years ago mm. in the past who gives a shit what is where's bolus and emrakul why, why aren't we talking about them more um yeah i mean it's the kind of thing where these stories are set correct me if i'm wrong they are set after the books that covered the brothers war all the way back some when. yay some nay well, so I mean, so right, so it, it jumps around. It all jumps around, yeah. obviously, because the whole nature of the stories, which Nathan will do, kind of a, a sort of semi breakdown, because there's actually a lot too much to like do our traditional breakdowns. Really, um, it jumps all over the timeline because we're following Teferi doing some time travelly stuff, uh, even in in both halves, the chapters of the side story and the episodes of the the main one. But the, for example, the first uh, episode by Mingus, uh, the end, uh, I think it's called. Um, starts at the end is like carrying directly on from those the books and then it all kind of loops back around so that that's what i mean by like it's all new content it's not covering the stuff that's in the books that people should already be familiar with um and all that kind of thing yeah we don't see any repetition like we specifically don't see the point of view of Urza or mishra apart from one little bit um at the end that we'll get to um and all of the side stories are kind of 
they're low to the ground. As uh, let me as I described, I put that um, it's five vignettes depicting the low to the ground stories of the Brothers' War, um, the escalation and the aftermath of it from the point of view of the people, not from the you know the protagonist antagonist, if we call Zerzer and Mishra, those people. Um, we see the soldiers from both sides tackling the day to day reality of prolonged warfare and the effect of Ezra and Mishra's feud. Um, uh, the effect that has wrought on the land and the citizens of Terrasari, of Terrasier. I realise in that YouTube video I did about um, Urzalans, I was I mispronounced Terrasier like every every time. <laughs> it's too <laughs> late to go back and change it now, um, so I'm going to try um, and rectify that now. But geez, yeah, Terrasier. Ter- sure. I mean, let's let's talk Terracier. a little bit about uh, about Miguel Lopez for a start. So Miguel Lopez has been uh, a part of Magic Story since uh, Zendikar Rising. Um, he wrote two of our favourite stories from Zendikar Rising, which was Red Root and Magosi Steps. And then he also wrote from, in Kaldheim, he wrote potentially my favourite story. And I can't remember what your take was on it. He wrote Direction, Purpose, Honour and Glory, which was the side story detailing the, the spirits of Istfel, um and the, the kind of warrior spirit who was on a, the last little mission and kind of confronted Egon, the god of death. Um, also wrote the Planeswalker's Guide to Streets of New Capenna. And I remember every time Lopez's name popped up, I was just kind of going, oh, this guy's fucking great, isn't he? Like, Jesus Christ, like, what a writer for magic. What a voice. Yeah, what a voice. And, you know, we were talking just before we started recording, and um, this will come up later in sort of how I sort of approach these stories and what I felt about them, both positive and negative. But we wanted more of Miguel Lopez, and we absolutely got it, because the word count, on these stories, I did a little um, experiment, like literally just before we hit record, where I looked at the word word count for episode one, the end, and then I did the same word counts for the first story of both Kaldheim and Crimson Vow. I just picked two at random off the page. Both of those, Crimson Vow and Kaldheim, are popping in at just over four thousand words. Each one of these stories is like eight thousand plus. That we're getting double the amount of of fiction from Miguel Lopez here. It's absolutely nuts. It's crazy. Like, mm. literally double the amount of, of content, which is it's a big swing. It is. And you can clearly tell that he's not just kind of, like, fumbling around aimlessly, filling um, gaps in. Like, he clearly has a very good knowledge of um, the characters that we see. And we're seeing characters that, you know, we haven't seen for decades. Um, and the the world building itself, like the expansion, um, it, it's not really world building because the world is built. We've already had this. If you want to go and read The Brothers War, go and read The Brothers War. It's not a bad book. Um, but he clearly has. Um, and and the, and the work that he's doing here is... is um, it's really um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, true to to, to 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 old magic. It's not retconning anything. Um, it's it's a lovely voice, and it's one of these. I said this in, in one of our little like WhatsApp groups that we have, because um, obviously as MTG players we have like six different whatsapp groups uh, dedicated to magic um and one of them i was saying it's like it's one of the first times i've kind of like sunk into the story to the point of where like i kind of the world around me disappears you know and i, and I start mm. like falling into the, the 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 brothers war as it were and every chapter i was like as much as i could feel like bloody hell is this still going and you know you do that little thing of you scroll down a little bit just to see how much is left and you're like oh my god we're already halfway through okay never mind you know like, and every time i'd still feel like i wanted the story to go on longer yeah so it really does show that he had a really he hooks he hooks your um your imagination in and he and he really delivers on it. Um, there's um episode four. I mean, we'll get we'll get to we'll get to this afterwards. But like his considering it's all about war, it could have felt very samey samey. And it's one of the things that's always been an issue with magic um narrative is that the action is a bit shit and the dialogue can sometimes be a bit mm. flat. And both <laughs> sometimes the action sometimes sometimes. sometimes. The, 
that's what I mean. But the action in this is all enthralling and the voices that we hear are all unique um, and all have their own personality and they don't all just speak in the same voice, which sometimes you can kind of have when you've got seven different planeswalkers all talking together and they all just kind of sound like they're speaking with the same direct purpose. Whereas here, everyone has their own intention. They only have their own path. So it's, it's really lovely. If, I mean, if these are the only stories you're going to read, out of out, out, like you know over the last six months i'd recommend it because it doesn't it doesn't feel like you need to know anything else that's going on in the story to enjoy them they feel like they are nice standalone narrative pieces and again it's it's a throwback to a part of magic law that you might not know about um and again it presents it in a way that's a little bit more harrowing um and a little bit more heartbreaking um but considering we've got five episodes to crack through which is we're only doing the half of them today we're only going to do the, the the past stories we'll do the the current concurrent the chapters as they were we'll do the chapters next week we'll do the episodes today just because both will require its individual i think perspective um yeah. so i am if that's okay with you just going to crack on through because i've got you know not not eight thousand words to get through but <laughs> i mean you know i had forty thousand words to get through and summarize um, yeah go for it so we're going to start uh with episode one uh known as the end um it we are on uh, a snowy night, the first signs of the impending ice age that's inexorably alluded to throughout the story. Um, and we're following Caleb and Krug. Um, this is Urza's wife and the princess um, to Yosha during the Brothers' War, who is now the queen of Yosha now that the, um, the, the, the dust has settled, um, who laments on the tragic end of the Brothers' War, the Silex detonation having just happened. She currently presides over the ruined city of Penrigan. At the end of a long council meeting with an old man, uh, at the end of a long council meeting, an old man arrives. This is Tornos, um, Urza's assistant, who Kayla knows all too well. They talk of the war, her, of her son Harbin's death, and the potential to build new machines to help rebuild the city. Uh, Tornos also reveals that Urza is still alive, although in a different form. Um, interestingly, we um, see this interaction much later in the um, in the in the episodes. We see it in um, episode five, right at the end. It kind of works as a um, a bookend. Um, Tornos sets to retrieving power stones for his civil automatons while the scout captain Miral, um, who is uh, not listed as a they throughout the story, which is more non-binary representation, always good to see. Um, Miral reports um, that a long procession of people, a ragtag army of sorts, has gathered on the other side of the Care Mountains. They attempt to repair the city wall before spring, when the procession will cross the mountains into their territory. When spring comes and the horde approaches the city, Kayla goes to meet their emissaries, who reveal that they are an anti-machine crusade on their way to destroy Urza's tower. Now, this is the beginning of the Church of um, uh, Church of Tal, um, whose motto is "Suffer not a magician to live." This is kind of like the aftermath of um, being against magic and mechanized um, uh, machines, you know, like but both 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 both, both um, aspects of um, of. of the war that you know that they, they feel like can be got rid of now you know we don't need magic we don't need artifice um she offers them supplies but but no quarters eventually the zealot uh, the zealous warriors learn that the city of penragon ha- is harboring machine demons as they put it um and things become heated kayla musters the troops and arms of and arms the automatons uh, the horde of pilgrims called talites after the church of tal are now offering kayla an ultimatum forsake the machines or die um, and the story, this particular um, episode ends the night before the confrontation is set to happen. As we move into ch- um, episode two, the beginning, um, it shows the aftermath. Penregan wins the fight, uh, but it's a Fyrick victory. And also Tornos snaps. 
uh, deciding that um, he's uh, been tainted by a lifetime of designing war machines. You know, he started off as a toy maker, as a tinkerer, and you know, as he as he reflects on this and now what he's um, what he's wrought, what his um, you know, can we call it science? I guess we can call it science, right? Mm. Um, his uh, his artifice and um, seeing what that's kind of developed, what it's developed into over the years, he decides to burn down his workshop um, along with himself. Uh, or I mean, for intents and purposes, he disappears, um, and Kayla never sees him again. Um, the city dies slowly over the, over a decade as the ice age um, truly starts. We start seeing uh, the encroaching glaciers, reports of glaciers coming down from the south, um, wildlife changing over the course of, of over the course of years. Each spring starting later, each 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 winter coming earlier. Uh, most people abandon it to move to the west. They have scouting parties that are going out to the west, reporting of different towns that people are willing to go to and you know seek out their future prospects because the city is clearly um, you know full. Into falling to its death, um, Kyla discovers that she can do magic, which is a really nice point. I think it was nice to see um, a, a moment of, of mage craft kind of in its infancy during a time where you know technology was the predominant uh, form of you know magic um, on the plane. Um, it's a kind of pyromancy or controlling of heat through her hands that we see. Um, eventually she's forced to abandon the city too and to go west to New Yosha Um, she has a discussion with her grandson uh, about a magic academy being founded Um, this is the conclave of mages um, a citadel that's built by Ashnod and Tornos uh, on the site of the monastery of Gix on Dominaria during the Dark Age this is to study both artifice and magic Um, it's actually um, weird enough surrounded by the maze of Ith uh, she then continues west to Krug, ruled by the warlord Fask. Um, we then, right at the end, we almost get a little epilogue, um, cutting to Fask's point of view, who's um, getting really paranoid about a curse a witch supposedly laid on him. In the middle of uh, one night, he sees a spectre in his chambers, and it's because um, he's basically set, set up all of these little ropes with cans and, 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 and chimes and stuff on. So if anyone was to enter his um, room, he could hear them, you know, because he's got paranoia being a warlord. Obviously, people want to assassinate him. Um, and uh, the spectre's presence drives him mad. Uh, we cut to the present day where it's revealed that the spectre was Teferi, trying to do temporal viewing of the past and accidentally <laughs> revealed himself to the warlord. Uh, the temporal anchor that Sahili has constructed clearly needs recalibration. Uh, despite his influence that night echoing through generations of stories, so as in like the warlord tells of the spectre and then that spectre's story gets told to, to his children, to their children, um, none of this really matters because the following Ice Age obliterates any change that Teferi might have had on history along with the rest of the world. Um, we now move on to episode three, um, Sword One. Now, this is a contained story of uh, Mishra's sacking of Krug. Uh, we follow Samwell, one of five Avenger pilots, on a recruit's first day at war kind of story. Uh, a dragon engine attacks, most likely Traxos, um, and there is um, lots of, as I put here, lots of well-written action, but pretty much everybody dies. <laughs> uh, <laughs> leading on both sides are massacred. Um, at the at the end, a ghost of death is seen by a wounded um, is seen by a wounded soldier. The soldier thinks it has come for him, uh, but the ghost ends up being yet another vision of to fairy who says not yet um not yet to him but it actually is referring to his own placement in the timeline to kaya but the soldier hearing this saying not yet actually ends up living for many years afterwards another sign of Teferi's permanent effects on the past you know everyone was worried that oh is Teferi going back gonna fuck things up he's like no nah, i'm just going back in spirit clearly Teferi never learns anything about time despite being the best chronomancer <laughs> what an idiot um Anyway, then we move on to episode four, The Ink of the Empire, which I personally have as like my favourite out of the five. Um, This is um, mostly a tone and flavour piece about the everyday life of the Falaji trenches. So this is Mishra's forces uh, that we're seeing. All three of the other um, stories we've seen are kind of from the point of view of Urza's, you know, 
side whereas this we're seeing uh the troops from the phalagi um phalagi um phalagi nation um our perspective is from um, is uh, from two people uh, farid and karak seasoned soldiers of the contested trench lines they greet a new wave of naive recruits understanding that there is a new mobilized attack on the argivan forces upcoming ashnod's transmigrants which um are described in a horrible visceral detail we thought we'd done with the body horror <laughs> now the dominary united nope. is done oh no oh no this is worse if <laughs> it's so much worse uh, so we see them joining the front to bolster the forces. Uh, we get a moment to comment and reflect on the human lives caught between the brothers' machines and monsters, the human cost to both nations. Uh, Farid and Karak, along with uh, two other troops, masqueraders and night patrol to sneak out across no man's land to trade with the enemy. Uh, we have a beautiful moment between the two sides, similar to the 1914 Christmas Day football game between the British and the German forces that happened during World War I. Uh, they give information to the other side of the incoming attack, uh, one that the Argivan, Argivan command was already aware of and, prepare, and preparing for. Um, clearly, neither side, like on the, on, in terms of the ground forces, are in support of the continuing brutality. Our protagonists agree to hold back as much as possible in the attack and let the Mexa monsters fight each other, um, you know, essentially killing off themselves and not having to you know, incur any more human, um, human death. Um, and try and stay alive in spite of the oncoming slaughter. Uh, the attack, we... Um, the attack over we don't actually see the the, the attack it's uh, mostly just a bombardment that we see um, and we see them kind of go as the last wave this is for an incorrect we see them go over as the last wave by the time they reach the trenches the fight's over um the trenches are routed and the falaji uh, front uh, then continues to move once again ever forward as the contest for territory and war continues um, at the end again we get another little epilogue of our resident ghost and ghoulie to fairy <laughs> um, our time ghost um, we'll call him um, he's then searching the ruined battlefields uh, clearly still at the wrong point in time um, he's seeking the climatic final battle at Argoth uh, where the Silax's detonation uh, was um, was set um, there's a group of augmented scavengers uh, that certainly seems to be part of the society of Gicks. Um, they approach him um, in his phantom form uh, he freaks out and then leaves them behind we then move into episode five, as cruel as necessary. Um, and our final chapter, um, this is one that's more focused on the point of view of Teferi, as we get more perspective on his, Kaya, and Sahili's attempts on, on the temporal travel using the anchor. Uh, Teferi still can't figure out how the Silex works. So he goes through time to talk to us. So we get a lovely bit of um, um, kind of like well-being about how he sees traveling through time. It's kind of considered to be like this tapestry that's all woven and he's a needle kind of going through different holes within the tapestry. And he kind of talks about um, the time of the final battle as being almost like a scar, a blotted scar that he can't penetrate. That he almost like as he tries to approach it, it kind of almost naturally circumnavigates him because he kind of sees it as um, any action that happens is almost like cutting the tapestry and all the threads that go off of it or all the different timeline, you know, possibilities that happen. If he's going back in time, this is time that's already woven, you know, together. And because so much stuff um, or so many lives were ended, so many potential futures were ended in the cataclysm that, um, that he caused, it kind of has almost like this scarification on the tapestry of, of time, which is described really, really, really well. Um because he can't figure out, he goes uh, back through time to talk to Urza at the very moment of Urza's spark igniting. Uh, we see him activate um, the Silax um, using his own blood and tears uh, pouring into the vessel as the monstrous form of Mishra-fused dragon engine looms ever closer. He misses the activation of the first time, but as he travels back one last time, he finds a lake of time, uh, a moment at the point of Urza's ignition that they can pause and talk amidst the Cataclysm's destination. It's almost like time 
um, he because Teferi does a thing where he halves time again and again and again and again and again to the point of where that that's how he's essentially slowing time down is he's halving halving time each time. Um, but there's it's almost like in the Grand River um, of time as he's explaining it to us. Uh, this this moment they're in is a lake where all of the time has stopped. You know, and, and they have a moment to be able to talk within it. He's unsure of what the the, the exact nature of this. Urs is kind of unsure of the exact nature of this, but it's almost like a little bubble they get to talk in. Um, during the conversation, we see Urza die um, as a human and reform as an old walker. Um, like all of his flesh and and bones kind of crumble away, and then it, his body reforms around his spark. I mean, considering this is an old walker, you know, so back then they didn't even need their bodies; they could exist, and their, their bodies were almost like a figment of their own imagination of how they wanted to be seen. They could reform themselves however they wanted. Um, Urza tells Teferi that trigger. For the Silex isn't a spell or an incant or an incantation, but a person. Urza sacrificed himself to activate the Silex. He he literally poured himself into it to fill it. Um, Teferi is very candid about events yet to transpire in Urza's history in this conversation, although he never has a chance to mention uh, what his name is to him. Uh, Urza likely won't remember this conversation. It's mentioned because um, as soon as time then re- restarts, it's almost as if that that lake was a moment in the river, and the river's already moving. There's no, you know, you didn't have a, a moment to contemplate on the th- on the conversation that's happening. Um, so it's never really made certain if he does remember any of the stuff that happens, but it's kind of alluded to that he won't. Um, the time flow then continues as normal as the ferry departs back to the present um that's the last we see of Deferi in this episode our epilogue instead is um Urza now a planeswalker speaking to Tornos after the uh, cataclysm he finds Tornos in his uh, coffin uh, which he stays in I think something like five years um to be able to protect himself from from the, yeah. the, the battle um and then this is the conversation that we alluded to at the beginning in episode one where he spoke to Urza and Urza was someone and he tells Kayla how Urza isn't dead he has now become something more um and um the episode ends with Tornus noticing the first flakes of snow falling, a reminder of the Ice Age and the death of the world to follow. And that's it. Five little yeah, well done. lovely stories. Episode one and two being kind of a part one, part two, and then each of the other ones kind of having its own standalone effect. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I got yeah. glossed over a lot of, because I, I, I factualized it, but it, it, everything that within there was uttered so fantastically what a voice what a voice what did you think andy what did you think well as someone who admittedly isn't as hot on the brothers war era of stories and honestly sort of considers them to be wonderful baseline for magic and obviously for the people who really love them the kind of that is what magic was for the longest time but something that suffered from you know, endless amounts of books that weren't very well written, some of them, some were a lot better. The fact that Dominaria was this huge landmass and every single culture was so utterly detailed and realized and all this kind of thing. Like it wasn't it's not the most accessible story. So as someone who has often struggled with, you know, knowing the capital city of a province, of a continent, of a side of a planet that we haven't been to properly in a long time. I found these stories to be really enjoyable and and actually a lot more accessible than I thought they would have been. The first two being the end and the beginning, which uh, for I mean for a start, I don't know if if Lopez is the one who um, chooses the names of the stories, but because not it's not always the case. But I mean, if if they are, then it's really well written. Um, <clears throat> the the first two following Caleb and Krug directly after the events of the Brothers War bringing in Tornos and kind of spinning all those, you know, stories out to set up the stage for the following three episodes to follow, I thought was a really clever idea. And they didn't 
they managed to do it without patronizing or kind of playing down the the wealth of knowledge that's behind these stories. Like they didn't explain too explicitly who Kayla was, at least not in an exposition dump. It was done quite naturally through her thoughts and emotions. They didn't too explicitly on the nose explain who Tornos was. Again, it was fairly naturally played out in his role during this kind of time period. And I, I sort of, you know, we are introduced to these characters through names. Like Krug is is a name that's appeared on like magic cards. If I'm if I'm talking about magic cards from say like the 2018 Dominaria set Fords, because I know obviously I mean that's you know that's four to five years ago now. Um, but if I'm considering this little pocket of magic, you know we've been to Dominaria twice, and a lot of these stories kind of pop up in the Commander products. Torno got a card in I think it's 2018. I think it was the 2018 Commander product. I can't quite remember. It's the one which was the um, Sahili Planeswalker deck. Um, anyway, um, you know, I think I think it was a huge task, maybe even a bigger task than say wrapping up storylines for things like War of the Spark, for example, or you know, you know, doing these big sort of end game esque things. I think this was a huge task to do the Brothers War, to do the first throwback set, and ultimately it was made incredibly accessible, even the difficult first two episodes. And then episodes three, four, and five, five being kind of its own thing again, I think were were really well set up and really nice little contained stories. So ultimately, I fucking loved it. I do think, <laughs> and this is me immediately being the the uh, hypocrite of we need more magic story, and then literally getting double the word count and going, oh, may- maybe too much. Like this was a book, this was a novella essentially. Mm. Um, which is fine, but when you're not expecting it, when you are like, when I sat down to be like, "Cool, I'm going to take the time to read these stories," and I'm not the fastest reader, and it was still taking me like an hour, hour and a bit to get through each one. Like, oh, I'm a working man, Nathan. Like, <laughs> I don't know how much time I have. Do you know what I mean? So I don't know. That was my only criticism. But if that's the only criticism, is the fact that we got too much of it. I think that's kind of fine. Um, ultimately speaking, yeah. I think, like, in, if you were to read them individually, like, so that's why I, I, I wrote them, like, one, because they came out, one and two came out on the same day, and then three and four came out on the same day, and then five came out alone. Uh, doing both stories in one day was actually quite a task. Like, I, I, I've, I've restarted work recently. I'm only a half-hour journey from work. I barely, it, I, I don't think I managed to finish the story on the way there and back, you know? So mm. I actually had to, like, put concerted, like, time aside to, to you know, to digest them. And they did take digesting. Like, um, Lopez's really um writing style isn't easy i'm not gonna say the word easy as in like it's not difficult um it's just you want to take your time with it you want to indulge in it there are some fans there's some fantastic uh, languages that you really kind of want to let wash over you don't want to skim you know and especially if you're trying to catch up on a load of stories as you say like they're not pandering uh to the new people with load of um um, exposition but at the same time there is a lot of dense facts in there and a lot of things that if you're not aware of these people or what's happening you kind of want to get every little bit of detail as well and again it, this part of I think this part of the story is never documented anyway like this immediate aftermath like we've seen the sacking of Krug for, in the Brothers War but we didn't see it from the point of view of the soldiers but we have never seen this little this little tiny bit just after the cataclysm you know we haven't mm. seen Kayla's kind of as, as you said as, as you said like her um her response you know and everything and i think that's really really important for older older um, magic um like vorthoses as well as players because they get a little bit more it's like they can go oh i can ignore it you know it's not relevant i've already read it all before it's like no 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 mm. it's actually new stuff um mm. and it's stuff that that you do want to to add to your um 
add to your knowledge. Um, and I think she comes across really well. Like, there's no deference towards her. It's actually really nice to see, because we know that as a dick, we've known, but it's nice to get it almost like from a personal point of view, like the, from the wife and the, and, the, and the student, you know, like that's a really important perspective to get on him because it kind of, Rose's voice is always going to be um, kind of un, 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 like beyond reproach. You know, we do get a little bit of his voice at the end of episode five and for the, throughout the whole time, I'm like, it's very hard to relate to, to him from his point of view. It's much easier to relate to him from other people's point of view of him. You know, he has literally just destroyed mm. his entire He is a scourge, you know, people absolutely hate him and despise him despite his necessities. And we even see in the moment like of... Um, in the, when he detonated the silex like i can understand like you can see his point of view he's actively crying into the into the silex and i think to very mention that he's never seen his like you know his, his teacher express such emotion before so it, it really gave like without bringing urza back i don't know how we can get more story of him apart from doing these kinds of things and it was really nice to get some urza story without bringing him back because i don't think he should come back um and i think it was as i say yeah, a, a nice perspective to get on him um, yeah, seems- for sure. I, do, I, do, I quite like the idea that, you know, there are, it's not just a, a set of stories being like, look how terrible these two men are, like, in, in terms of, you know, as if Mishra and Urza were especially evil entities. Like, they do, like, the writing does make a really good job of making it relatable to our own world. Your favourite story being episode four is a very World War One trenches I'm saying World War One because that's obviously, as two Englishmen, that's the story we get told over and over again. All of mm. our history lessons in secondary school covered the Tudors, World War One, and World War Two, <laughs> and that's all we learned about um, because our education system is obsessed with it. So there are other wars, obviously, and trench warfare is something that appears all over the world. But to relate to our experience of like reference, it, is, it does feel very World War One-y. and you know, m- having the, the the main characters wanting to survive the idea that uh as one of the characters spouts the lesson is your cloak and your boots are more important than this trench and the front line mm. the front lines can change daily you might only get one set of boots and a cloak you know so protect them at all costs you know they're kind of microcosm stories again in that story they talk about how they don't want to be just another notch of millions on a chalkboard for the princes of the world to look at ambivalently. You know, they they are their own living, breathing, agency-filled people. Um, and that's a really relatable way to look at these, these two warlords, these two princes of the universe in, in the terms of the brothers, as opposed to just being like, oh, Urza's callous and he ruined the world because he did all this stuff and all this kind of fantasy lore and, you know... Speaking, speaking as two Vorthoses who love fantasy lore, it's it can sometimes be a bit much, and it is just a lot easier to go like, hey, you know the sort of allegory of the the lions led by, uh, was it lions led by sheep? Lions led by goats? Donkeys, that's it. Lions led by donkeys, which is what they said of the Tommies and the officers in World War One for the British Army. The fact that the lions were actually the ones at the front line who had bravery and were the ones really doing things, and the donkeys who knew fuck all about how actually the world was where the people sat in the front line in the offices like 20 miles behind the front lines giving out orders um you know it, it is a much more sort of grabbable idea and i think it's executed brilliantly um my favorite story actually is sword one um and it gave me 
huge anime vibes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's a bit of Attack on Titan-y. Not, not Lo- Attack massively Titan-y. Attack on Titan-y. Massively. Full Metal Alchemist. Yeah. Full Metal Gundam. Good. All of these. Any yeah, of these exactly. animes, which, and there is a lot of them, which follow either mechs or being like, hey, this 15-year-old child is now a soldier <laughs> and is given this outrageous weapon to roam around the country and like you know all of those and that's and that is uh sort of anime's obsession with this kind of stylized version of like steampunk Europe right and like Germanic Europe um fed mm. through the anime lens that's then fed back to us in the west and then becomes you know, part of our fantasy lore and our fantasy culture, which is what I think is a wonderful sort of like bouncing back and forth and always have done. Yeah, um, I did remember, I did imagine it as a, as an, as a medieval London. Yeah, like, I was imagining 100%. it was like beams, beams and stone, you know, I wasn't imagining like Minas Tirith. I was imagining something that was way more like uh, relatable to, 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 you know, to the cities that I mean, we had during those times. In, in my mind, it was Attack on Titan. It was, yeah. it was, you know, very much how like Dranith was in Akoria. I always said it was like, felt very Attack on Titan. That was, that's my sort of like, you know, feeling seeing these kids in these like rigs with all their, their, you know, the protagonist in that story running around in his sweat-soaked jumpsuit with all of his pilot rigging and he's got his control rod and his... Even the name, Sword One, is just is mech... Like, his mech um, media, like, personified, right? Just that kind of really hyper-stylized name, Sword One. Um, yeah, just incredible. And even just, like... I mean, I've... <laughs> I would be a fool if I said I understood... Uh, Neo, Neon Genesis Evangelion. <laughs> I don't understand Evangelion at all, even though I've watched it a few times now. But even the idea that there's a passage in that story where he sees uh, Sword One, even though he's piloting Sword One, Sword One seems to be displaying fighting prowess and movements that almost make it seem like it's living and it's kind of its own mm. entity. Very much the way that the the uh, mechs in Evangelion are discovered to be spoilers for evangelion something of like a sentient being themselves you know it's just it's just this idea where i don't know i don't know there's like a real sort of dark undercurrent to all of these stories that are, that kind of makes them really relatable in a in a way that a lot of other magic story just seems a little bit even from the greatest writers sometimes feels a little bit shallow the, mm. these stories had a lot of depth and a lot of undercurrents to them yeah, it makes me feel like the humans are like, but the, the two parallels I see in these across all of these is that the human lives are super important because those are the masses and numbers that make up the army and make up the, the you know, the sieges and the conquests and everything. But it keeps trying to point out just how insignificant they are compared to the increasing war machines that Urza and Mishra are bringing to the table, you know? Like you have uh, Samwell, who's like just some dudes. There are five, only five of them. There are five little pilots, five, five of these Avengers. And within, I think, what must be a couple of minutes of getting enlisted and they're running down running down into the city a dragon mm-hmm. engine like dra- mm-hmm. fucking starts pounding and like the dragon engine like they all go to the left to go and flank it and as they go to the left the entire rest of their squadron gets annihilated in one breath of fire including mm-hmm. their captain and you're like holy holy shit and at that point they both just kind of go right cool we don't care about fighting the dragon anymore now it's just about fucking surviving and one of like the three there's only three of them left and one of them is absolutely losing it he starts screaming they have to gag him they to gag mm-hmm. him and then bring him along with it. It's like it's it makes the the humans feel like they're so irrelevant, but like their stories are so important because realistically they're the ones who are going to rebuild after all of this. They're the ones that have to get up, they like, pick themselves up and carry on. That's what's great about episode one and two is that it's the there's been the cataclysm. There's this like we know the world is going to wind. You know, like obviously this is 
thousands upon thousands of years in the past and there are two ice ages across dominaria before we get to the modern modern time and we know that the ice age is coming and what's going to follow afterwards you know the dark but like we see that that human the effect that, that the war has on the on the day-to-day and on the on the, on, on the individual which i think again makes magic story it's something that magic story misses a lot because it's harder to relate to um a pyromancer who can burn with the fire of the sun um mm. you know on who can speak to the soul of a world like those things aren't necessarily really relatable but looking at the, the machine that you're piloting and how efficient it is at killing and then wondering whether how that was programmed into it that's really relatable because that's something that as a, even as a magic um reader i sometimes read it's like how are they going to explain how mechs work you know mm-hmm. like how do they program them you know how do they get the, the what do they have little silicon chips in with the binary zero one kind of programming who knows you know because even like to this point it's also interesting to see that magic hadn't wasn't really surfacing the thran as much as they were really impressive a thousand years ago they weren't it wasn't magic that they were kind of harnessing it was science and it's a it, you, i get this real feel from these stories that kind of that that is still so far in the past in terms of knowledge and understanding that they still can't separate science from magic in terms of understanding which is which you know an artifice of magic i think in dominaria kind of end up falling into the same kind of regard anyway it's just different understa- different systems of understanding um mm. and it was kind of nice to have even to fairy trying to explain like his um understanding of magic um, and how time works to urza who has obviously a much more simplistic understanding of things i say simplistic as if urza isn't really really clever but, you know mm. he was always known to not have um the fanciful artistic kind of view of things, which kind of explains why he always thought magic was something that was ridiculous. And it wasn't until he could feel the incantation on the Silex that he realized there was something beyond, you know, science and electricity. There was this kind of magic that was present. Um, And I feel like that's the kind of thing that gets really interesting because you're tearing down these grand, these grand magic-y things, you know, it's not a school for for mages and and has all of the arcane magic in it. It's like, no, these are the, the, your ancestors trying to figure out the basics of of, mm. of how magic and science works but then also how much that can be taken out of um get out of hand you know that that church of mm. of, of 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 um Tal. Tal coming in and basically not understanding that, that the machines can be used for anything other than bad you know they're so viciously against it and they go sweeping across and they, they're, they're very successful um that like the church of tower is very successful for years for, for generations onwards until you know eventually the, the ice age takes over everything so it's amazing to see the reaction from the brothers war we mm. expected to get like right in the heart of it which we did we get some battles right in the heart but we also get that aftermath of the brothers war mm. and what it meant for, for for the people and their understanding of how the world works and having to just deal with Right, good. Just got to carry on with more summers and more winters that are worse than they were before. Like, how are we going to survive? Like, that's that's human bleakness that's way easier to relate to uh, because yeah. magic doesn't typically get to do that very often. Yeah, and do you know what is? Do you know what's really interesting as well about you mentioned the word bleakness there? Then that I've just picked up on that because these stories are bleak, right? They are horrifying and you know just even the descriptions of like the dust again going back to sword one there's a there's a moment where there's a gust of wind that hits them like sandpaper and this is in the middle of them being attacked and like everything exploding around them and you just think fucking hell like what is going on here and if we compare these stories right to another story arc which is considered to be among the bleaker of the magic story arcs which is the Amonkhet stories obviously incredibly well written we've espoused them many many times uh, Anthony Tessitore came on the podcast and like has obviously had a huge hand in developing that world as well so this isn't to knock Amonkhet at all but if Amonkhet was bleak in a way of like well it's so bleak because there's just nothing there's no hope 
Polis has won. This is just a horrible meat grinder society. And it was just, it felt very much like a downer. These stories are arguably more bleak in terms of a real world allegory because there is war and, you know, all these stories have a rooted anchor in, in the world that we know. And especially, you know, these days, there are currently wars going on in every continent, you know. Um, but there is also a huge amount of contemplation and hope and you know it's not just a world full of violence and sacrifice there is you know there are moments of real humanity and you know i I don't know i don't know it just doesn't seem quite as final and maybe that's because we know dominaria bounces back from these stories and so there lopez is is building in that hope as well because he knows as the writer Hey, although these individual characters may be dying at these moments, the the story does continue. Whereas in Amonkhet, the whole idea is that we didn't know where the story was going because it was a quote unquote present day set. Do you know what I mean? I don't know. It just has a, it has a different sense of bleakness, and it also has this sense of hope and philosophy that I think magic has had a real hard time balancing. Sometimes it goes full in for the philosophy, and sometimes it goes full in for the battle, but it never really marries it up quite as well. I don't know. Yeah, it was kind of almost that focus on humanity, right? It felt almost triumphant a little bit at times, because it was almost like in, in the face of, of this um, destruction, you know, apocalyptic destruction, um, humans can still have that hope, that perseverance. Um, we see seasoned veterans that have been through multiple different battles, and it just kind of says, mm. I didn't expect to see another one. Like, it's just their day-to-day, you know? Like, it's... it's um, it's very encouraging to see when we don't again have those typical perspectives in magic stories because we're trying to grasp these overarching kind of magic systems and you know um different races of valkyries and stuff crossing across crossing realms and having giant battles with demons like that doesn't relate as much as you know as i think one of the the best best parts in episode four was um um this this moment was good this is just after they've um started uh dealing with the um enemy right you know they're doing their trades and everything for for mm, wares mm. and it says um this the moment this moment was good the war didn't make this moment happen it happened despite the war for Rid looked from Eamon's broken smile to larry's graying hair carrick's gaunt face to the bandaged brow of the argivan soldier he com- uh, he compared and traded knives with farid was not a poet but the beauty of this moment sat with him he committed to the memory the tragedy of this little pa- of this little piece. Their blood was the ink in which Lord and Emperors rewrote the borders of the world. Mm. Oh my mm. god, it's so pretty, it's so lovely, it's so chewy. It's like, oh, like Lopez, what are you doing? Come on. And it's that's lovely, it's those moments of like, yeah, like with all this shit going on, and it all just spurred from this little difference these bloody brothers had. Um, and it's one of those kind of like normally there's moments of, oh, if this hadn't happened, if this hadn't happened, um, there's no contemplation of that. It's like this is happening. How are we dealing with it? How are we continuing to represent our humanity? As you said earlier, when like, you said like your cloak and boot is more more important than than the trenches, like, yeah, like protect yourself because you are the thing that is living and you are the thing that will continue you know the legacy of the land the land itself will will, will can perish the land itself can can rebuild itself but it's the the humanity that needs to kind of remain um in the face of such you know wanton destruction um yeah like yeah it's just such a lovely collection i think they did such a good job of representing just enough new information with just enough reality 
of things we kind of already knew about but never got a chance to see um so focused in on um, and we even mm. do get little glimpses of you know Mishra at the end and Ezra at the end but I, again the, the amount they speak is very very little and it's good that they're kind of kept to the background because as much as it is their war that's not what this set's about it's almost like what their war did to Dominaria is kind of what mm. this set's all about and I imagine once we get into the set properly I mean also there's something to be said for getting all these stories before we start seeing cards released and we used to get really annoyed about how they used to do that. Now it's almost like we know the story, like what flavor notes are we going to see from the cards, like the, mm. the, the reflections of the stories we've already read. You know, of course, we get a few little bits of artwork throughout the stories, but it's kind of going to be nice to see having now having now the knowledge of the Brothers War in our head, like very, very freshly, it's going to be much more relatable to the cards that we see, I think. Well, I, I, th- I think this is the right way to do it. I think this is absolutely, because they started this with, well, they didn't start it, they kind of revisited, sorry, because they've always changed around how they do things. But they revisited this from Kamigawa forwards, right? As in like Neon Kamigawa, <laughs> Neon Dynasty, whatever, new one, um, where they have the story building up the, the expectation of what the cards are going to be. And with more and more people being interested in the lore and reading it, not by no means even half the magic players in the world read the story, you know, because, you know, there's too many of us for that to happen. But the more and more people doing it, the expectations are kind of managed with what we're going to see. And the artwork does do a really good job of showing, I mean, everything's on fire. Everything's just molten metal <laughs> and, like, <laughs> war. So it's, you know, it's good. Um, let's talk a little bit about episode five, because that is probably the most different from all five of them, because it, it focuses yeah. in on Teferi, kind of dovetails into the chapters of the present day because it is focusing on our planeswalkers doing all their time traveling um it's arguably the only relevant one like quote unquote relevant well yes if you could miss the other four and it not matter but if i see what i see what you're saying some consequence yeah i see what you're saying but having said that i think it was a really smart idea to put that one at the end and to include it in this run as opposed to Mm. just having past and present stories like how they they have mainly split it but to have this one kind of coming in at the end because you get things in there like Tornos's coffin which uh is sort of only really referenced in relation to Tornos again in the story in the epilogue so actually after we see Teferi use it but the fact that we've had a relationship with Tornos in these stories through episodes one and two we know that we've seen Teferi pop in and out of these different uh stories from episode two three and four um we have seen the sort of toll that this has been taking on him in those moments as well. And so the fact that it all comes together and that we revisit all those little moments again in this story is really interesting. The thing that I want to focus on, and again, it seems to happen in every magic story arc where there is this instance, it always shines out to me to be the best one of the whole (laughs) run of stories and that is the one-on-one conversation moment. So the one that always pops into my head is between um, the Sedgemore dragon uh, and Belladros. Professor Onyx. Yeah, Belladros and Professor Onyx in the Strixhaven stories was easily the best moment in those stories. And yet again, in this one, the conversation between Urza and Teferi, the, the teacher-student from you know thousands of years from this moment being flipped on its head with Teferi literally saying whether he can lecture at Urza or not Urza this tyrant who has literally just destroyed the planet that he was trying to save actually coming across as albeit arrogant something of a thoughtful emotion filled ready to listen accepting student of Teferi's and Mm. accepting and even even having a moment where he says he's not ready for the fate that Teferi is telling him lies in for Urza, 
Yeah. I think just you know, the line's like thousands of years of this as a question mark. It's like, God, imagine understanding yeah. that and whether or not he's relevant, whether he knows that going out of this moment or not, which I think mm. he doesn't. But just have that moment of contemplation of realizing I've got to deal with thousands upon more years. And also, it's really harsh because Derek Tavares telling him that he fails. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah you know, those phrases you just beat. Nah, mate, they, they come back a few times. Yeah. You, you, fa- you fail several times more than this. Stops <laughs> but- stops short of telling him that he eventually joins the Phyrexians, which I think is an interesting little tidbit. Mm. Um, but there's, you know, and obviously... so. Uh, my point being is that how do we how do we reconcile this in the larger magic story context? <laughs> because you have to have all these big team up moments, like basically what all of the Dominaria United story was was just a hey, let's get the gang all together and do this slightly hollow thing with the Phyrexians. Um, and you know you have to have the big fight scenes, like we loved, like you know the two the two war uh, stories essentially in this were like the two standout ones. But when it all comes down to it, having these very quiet, very thoughtful conversations between characters espousing on the fantasy world that we've all invested in mm. actually come out to be some of the more truthful moments. And I obviously it wouldn't work of having just that being every single magic story, but it is just interesting how it seems to be, how it always seems to be the case that when everything kind of gets stripped away, literally in the case of Urza, who is physically and like spiritually a husk and like ready to be reborn into a planeswalker, you know, it's just it's just interesting to me how those are always the moments where I think like, fuck, like these writers really love what they're doing. Yeah, another moment I guess that was similar to that was the uh, moment between Jason and Emrakul, and it's kind of yes. it gives a voice to the big bad. Like, again, another recent one for this I feel like was when Elish Norn and Ashiok that the the story that we had between the two of them um, and then the moment they were see- speaking because it gives you a point of view of the antagonist which one thing that really annoys me about magic is you very rarely get to see the antagonist point of view which creates this very much of they're the bad guy, let's go and beat them and it's like we're the good guys, we're, like we're infallible and it kind of creates that um that 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 parallel kind of thing which is I think annoying because I'd rather see a little bit of the perspective of Elish Nord. I'd rather see a bit of perspective of Urza after he's done this. These are the things, the moments you want to see, because it justifies the why, and it justifies the, um, and it, I guess it humanizes him. This might be, well, this is the very last moment of Urza being a human, you know, and it's mm. nice to see that there are humanistic qualities to him, considering we've just seen what his, you know, stubbornness and his his artif- um, his artifice um, ability has, you know, what it causes, which is the destruction eventually of the entire world. Um, so it's nice to see, yeah, that that moment, and it's also nice to give Teferi a chance to kind of talk back with Urza, you know, reflecting on because the, the the interactions they had back um, during um, during their uh, histories together it was very much Teferi being a bit of a douche to him. I mean, rightly so, but like Urza and Teferi both had their moments of being you know a bit a bit cunty <laughs> so it's quite nice to see them both just like just having an, an honest to god conversation about something in a moment that's it's a really lovely thought that they are literally caught in a moment that shouldn't exist just after the cataclysm you know like that's such a crazy um thing to imagine <laughs> being mm. right on the detonation of the silex and it kind of made me like as i was reading like as i was reading it my eyes were kind of trying to skip ahead trying to get to like yeah and 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 whilst my brain was saying no slow down slow down we only get this moment every now and again enjoy it indulge mm. in it mm. you know you can reread it as many times as you want, but it's the first time you're going to be seeing these this information kind of spoken about. And like, I was really shocked when Tafo just started talking about the present day to him. And I was like, yeah. do you think I'm going to remember this? And Tafo's like, I don't think so. I don't know though. No. And obviously, if, and his line was, I don't think I could still be, 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 I don't think I could still be here if what I'm saying now affected you 
and affected the future. So they still yeah. have this idea of back to the future, right? Marky, Marty McFlying it of where anything you do in the past would have would be actively changing yourself and what you've done in in the in the future. You know, blah 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 blah. Cause and effect. I, I wonder. Yeah, I mean, this is the, so in, in general, time travel media is something that I, like many, I'm not alone in this, kind of sort of thinks as a conceit never really works and gets annoyed yeah. at when people try to overexplain it too much. And I think they're doing a good job of just going, he's a chronomage, the planeswalkers all have enough ability that they can just kind of make it work. And like the sort mm. of the philosophic, they're sticking to the philosophical ideas of what time travel is rather than trying to be like, this is how time travel actually works. Because it's all bollocks anyway um, do you know what i mean so like yeah, you're all making it's all it magic up, exactly it's all magic just basically we just trust that the characters know what they're doing um what i really like about in this to what you're saying about teferi just starting to blurt out stuff about the future and then going well i don't think it'll matter but it's clearly something that teferi in this moment thinks he needs to do and this is something of his character which i think is so consistent and wonderfully consistent since he kind of came back from the sort of shadow of how he was in the 2018 Dominaria stories. You know, this this is the same Teferi that warped out Zalfir from the Phyrexian War. Because in that moment, he was like, this is what I think needs to be done. And he went in and did it. Mm -hmm. This is the same attitude. He's doing what he's not sure whether it's the right thing to do in terms of right and wrong in the universe, but this is what he thinks is the right thing to do in terms of you know, morality and all that kind of thing. The difference being is that the Teferi that warped out Zalfir had the arrogance to think that he was infallible and that he was the yeah. only one that could do all of this. Whereas Teferi today is making these decisions knowing that, you know, things can go wrong and that the people around him are going to help him through it, which is, you know, doesn't stop him from making these decisions, but definitely gives him more of a grounding and more of an understanding that I, I don't know. I don't know. Like the needs do justify the ends, but it's it's a much calmer, much more lower to the ground attitude than hey, I can just blip out my entire nation. They'll come back, right? You know, this is a man who's saying I need to tell my mentor these things because I'm preparing him for what he's about to come. And mm. if it all fucks up, then it all fucks up. But what what are we doing this for? You know, I don't know. It's it just struck me as it's it is the same character and making the same types of decisions, but from a very different place. At least yeah. that's how well, I read I mean, Teferi, anyway. Absolutely. I feel like the, the, the passage that kind of de defines this is where he says, um, Teferi thought of a way. Um, oh, so, so he says he had to find some way to step beyond, and he thought of a way. It was a risk. Was this not a risk? Everything could go wrong, yes. But back in his time, everything was already wrong. Calm was gone, mm. the Phyrexians were on Dominaria again, Jaya was dead, and the last redoubt was about to fail. What is the worst that could happen, Teferi thought? The end of the multiverse? Question mark. Which I love, because at that moment I'm like, Yes, Teferi, it could actually be the end of the multiverse. Yeah, but, that, but that's uh, the thing, isn't it? That's the they're thing. They're already at the end of the multiverse. If the world they're already in. Yeah, the world breaker is going to, realm breaker, whatever, I, I keep misnaming, I think it's realm breaker. Um, the Phyrexian version of the world tree, if that actually happens, and it happens in a way that I kind of they keep kind of explaining it's going to happen, which is it's going to connect to every plane at once, the same way that the world tree connects all of the realms of Kaltime together at once. Like, that is the end of the multiverse. Like, there's a moment um, that we'll see on the other side um, of the stories in the chapters rather than the episodes of where war isn't like the, as much as we thought Dominaria United was kind of like, oh, it's done, right? You know, Sheldred kind of got vanquished-ish. Like, you know, she succeeded. She buggered off back to, to, to Phyrexia. The war on Dominaria is still ongoing and it's ongoing everywhere. You know, things aren't actually fine. Things are at our, you know, minute to midnight on the doomsday clock. So I, I like that, yeah, as you say, it's almost like 
it's the, it's the ugh, I hate to say it, it's the Thanos thing, right? Of where he's the only one with the power to do something about it and the only one with the will to act on it, you know? And mm. again, I'm glad that he took that. He, and he has, and he says it's a measured risk, but it's something that he has to do. And because he had did do it, then we get these awesome moments, you know? We don't get mm. those, like, I mean, again, if you're going to write fiction, and you're going to create these impossible situations where you have someone who can do the impossible thing, make them do the impossible thing and then deal with the consequences afterwards because you're, write, you're writing fiction. You might as well push yeah. the envelope into something. You know, there's no point going, oh, he could fix the situation, but it might go wrong, so they're actually going to find another way to do it. And I'm like, no, just do it and make the mistake and then make the, the, make the characters deal with the fallout. Let your characters yeah. die, you know? Let people be completed. Let Phyrexia win. That's what makes story interesting, you know? There are so many times throughout Magic's history that things have gone really fucking bad and then they've had to find a way to fix it again. What ha- keeps happening in the mod- modern story is we keep knowing something big and bad is hap- is going to be happening, but then they keep mm. stopping it from happening instead of letting it happen and then having to find a way to either deal with the aftermath or fix it, which is, I think, kind of a nice train ch- change that we've seen here, even though it is a story in the past. And even though they did manage to avoid that whole thing of Teferi going in the past and fucking things up, as far as we can tell, yeah. he didn't do that. And that's something they very easily could have done. They could have gone, he goes back to the future and oopsie poople, Ursa's still alive. Oh, mm. you know, and Gix and Mishra are here too. Like mm. the whole gang survived somehow by some timey-wimey bullshit. And they kind of have avoided doing that, which is good because I think that'd be a massive distraction. Um, especially when, yeah, that's know, that's still a, got this... the right word, isn't it? It would have been a distraction. Yeah. It would have been a. Yeah. It would have been a way it's to get these shit to deal with. You know, yeah. like fine, let him to very go and go back. We've done our throwback set. Let's lead the throwback set thrown back. We're getting three more Urzas in this set. We're getting three new Mishras in this set. We don't need them in the modern set. We did it. We even got a little bit of Urza talking. This is almost the perfect amount of a throwback in my mind. Mm. Like I don't, I don't, I don't think. Considering how much of a risk it could have been, I don't think they could have done it better. Um, let's see how the fucking set comes out and whether or not it destroys standard slash commander or slash modern, <laughs> whatever. But from a narrative, I mean, point of I'm view, I'm excited really for the aesthetic. Like, sort of just talking mm. a little bit about the cards. I mean, I know I've said this in previous episodes as well. Like this, the the sort of Geiger esque body horror, the mech punk, because it's not quite steampunk, because it is more like. The power zones aren't more like steam; they are more like nuclear energy, aren't they? Um, so I guess you could call it yeah. like nuclear punk. But like this, this kind of mech aesthetic is definitely my jam, and I'm excited to see it in Magic. I cannot wait. It's far more my jam than say the cyberpunk stuff of Neon Dynasty. And I love sci-fi and I love cyberpunk, but I think I'm definitely I vibe more towards this kind of grimier, grittier um, sort of aesthetic of like futurist aesthetic. So yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing it in my decks. I can't wait to build something of like a like a war machine deck, which I know have existed mm. before because we've had these kinds of aesthetics in Magic. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, the Dragon Engine in Sword 1 is is Traxos, right? I, I believe so. What we've yeah. seen... With a, it's not the drag. It's not the uh, the Phyrexian dragon engine we've seen already. Kind of spoiled with, with Mishra. Yeah, Mishra, it's not Mishra. That's dragon a different engine, one no. because that's the one that happens right at the end of the story, right in the last story that he melds with and then attacks um, Urza, and that's what causes Urza to then throw uh, pull himself into the Silex, the visage of uh, Mishra fused with this dragon engine. And it's not. There's another dragon engine in the artwork, which is the Falaji dragon engine, uh, which is a different looking flying one. I really hope we get a Traxos. I don't see why they wouldn't give us a Traxos uh, considering well, the scourge of maybe... crew card was a throwback already yeah know? like nice the, to see yeah, tracks of scourge of krug was is like that is the the problem with getting multiples of the same legendary is unless they have new story that's pushing it forward it doesn't really it's kind of always a little bit like mm, are we just getting different takes because you didn't like the way you designed the first one and sometimes that's I fine guess, like with the urza cards i guess flavor wise i guess flavor wise the, the scourge of krug 
comes doesn't untap. It requires someone else. You know, it requires um, a historic spell to be to be cast for it to untap. So it's almost like run down. I'd like to see it without that. Um, yeah, because tracks kind of doesn't untap ability. Yeah, I guess the tra- I guess you're right. I guess the tracks of Scourge of crew card was because in the world of Dominaria 2018, that was something that was uncovered in that in the present day yeah. they unearthed him, and so it was like and we oh, don't know if relic. that's. We don't know if that's one that maybe Rona was using in the modern Dominaria United story, for example. It's not named yeah. as being Traxos, but then we don't know if any of the fractions name. I mean, we know we know the name of it, but maybe that was named from the people of Crew calling it Traxos, yeah. or maybe it was the, rather than the name fractions gave it. So maybe we could see it in the modern day, you know, all fire and brimstone actually, you know, killing, killing, killing beeps. But. Mm. Couple of nice little moments from the stories, just to I guess wrap up because I think we're we're kind of heading that way. Uh, mm-hmm. Little reference to Nabiz. The uh, drink that we mentioned in our menu of the multiverse episode, mm-hmm, so uh, mm-hmm. you should know what Nabiz is, dear listener, if you've listened to that episode, uh, which was kind of cool because obviously we're on Old Dominaria and that's what they drank on Old Dominaria. Um, and and the just got super excited about it as well, which is really nice. The just got and super excited the, about it. The moment was like, don't get excited about it, they're only giving us all of these supplies so we're strong to go and attack tomorrow. Yeah, <laughs> which so is we're another compliant. galling part of war. Yeah. Yeah, well it's like how they, you know, they used to, like, well they, and they still do, obviously, because <laughs> they used to, as if that doesn't happen, but the fact that soldiers get completely blotto on, like, speed and coke and they get sent over the top. Um, anyway, dark thought there. Um, also, <laughs> the when the Gix, uh, Phyrexians start trawling the battlefield in the same episode at the end when uh, the dust settles and it's those kind of more slicker looking robed uh, folk who are the Gixians and one of them looks at the Teferi time coast and goes, are you the one from our dream? <laughs> right? That this is, is what then freaks Teferi. Like, um, and it was it's, it's visions of Gix, they had visions of Gix, right? And the idea is that Gix does eventually become like a big part of the um, a big part of the story as well. And it's just kind of interesting that Teferi's just having all of these accidental, like who knows what that thought and that Gixian looking at him, that who knows what that then caused to happen in the, the church of Gix. Who knows? Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's great. That was a Ouija bit, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Anything for you? Any nice little moments? Um, the only other one I had, because I've mentioned the f- I've mentioned a few of the ones already, was um, like is um, Teferi accidentally creating uh, ghost stories um, and being mistaken for death. So the similar fate mm. vein of where it kind of felt a little bit twee in the moment because it was kind of like a random. Oh, also Teferi popped up at the end. I'm like, okay, great. Is that the only reason why we had a whole episode on this particular battle? Is because right at the end, Teferi happens to come along. I actually kind of liked that it created a ghost story that permeated. I liked that he he was perceived as death, and then it made the soldier go, you know what? Not today. Fine, I believe you. And then had, he would have died, and then he didn't. So I like this idea, and also I like the idea that specifically that um, it's only because of Sahili's, Kaya's, and Teferi's individual abilities that this is possible. I know that you ch- yes. touched on that just a second ago, and it's the only reason why, they, why can't they do this again next week? Like, it's really hard, it's very difficult. We'll see in the uh, chapters how difficult it is for them to actually succeed at this. Um, and we see it quite a lot in episode five, they're having to, like, keep going back, keep going back. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. That, that was, that was, it was nice. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry, it was the same soldier in that episode three who sees the Teferi Time Ghost. That is then the old man in uh, episode four, Iman. Mm. It's the same yeah, soldier. Exactly. Which yeah. is so nice that we get a little bit of like, and it's, that's what I, li- I liked as well. So with the timey wimey stuff is like episode one and two was technically set after the other episodes because they happen after the cataclysm. Whereas then episode three, four, and five are kind of Teferi getting closer to, because I think he basically he went too far. 
initially in his first throwback he went too far mm. beyond which is why we see episode one and two and then he went okay let's go to the other end and work our way towards it uh, which is why then we got episodes four five um three four and five in that order which is quite nice mm. it's almost like doing it from teferi's point of view even though we're not we spend very little time in teferi's point of view yeah yeah, yeah exactly we are we are teferi looking at these moments in time yeah cool all right then Right. Well, thank you so much for listening to our story breakdown of this half. I think we actually did quite efficiently. Um, tell us your thoughts on these episodes for the Brothers' War. What do you think of this set? First throwback set, first sort of set of throwback stories as mainline stories, as opposed to one-offs, how they used to do uh, on the Magic website. Uh, let us know via our Twitter at mtflavoring. Emails go to mtflavoring at gmail.com. My personal Twitter is at Andy Manface. Nathan's, yours is? At the Fox in the Moon. Um, Yeah, I'm excited. I think this set is going to absolutely rip. I think it's going to be fantastic to play. I think it's going to be aesthetically a really strong set. I think the stories have proven that the narrative is really strong as well. Who knew mm. a story that's already sort of been told <laughs> with new spin? Like that's actually a pretty good way to go. Um, and I, I am definitely looking way more forward to this than I looked forward to and received Dominaria United. Sorry, mm. Dominaria United, um, you were just fine. Um, yeah. yeah, it was Dominaria. It was the Dominaria set part two and part one. Unfortunately, just had all of the good songs on it, and the B sides weren't so good, <laughs> which yeah, is unfortunate. Exactly. Um, I would like to see. I don't know how they'll be able to do it because obviously, narratively, there was a reason why we did a throwback to this set, and I know that we've said we wouldn't mind seeing other parts. Like, I would love to see the Thran re. Um, got yes. Logan back at the Thran for example or for example we talked about the Blood Age and Strixhaven I don't know how they'll be able to do it because it seems they only did this for narrative reasons it would be nice yes. to see other ones um, and I guess we all need to do is show the support for this set to show that there's a reason to do it again in the future yeah cool alright then well other than that all that remains for me to say is thank you so much for listening this has been Magic the Flavouring we'll see you soon